Episode 43, The Northern Renaissance and the First Reformers. Well, it has been a while since I posted a new episode, right? I took a break over the holidays, and it was surprisingly hard to get restarted on this. Anyway, we're back, and yes, we're still talking about the Renaissance. A few episodes ago, we talked about the Renaissance and we are focused on what happened in Italy, where the Renaissance had started. The Renaissance spread out of Italy into the rest of Europe, but as it spread in new places, other things besides amazing art began to be added to this rebirth. Specifically, as the Renaissance spread north, in addition to new art, there were a lot of advances in science, theology, politics, and philosophy. So while the Southern Renaissance was mainly an artistic rebirth, the Northern Renaissance was mainly an academic rebirth. Now, that's not to say that both things, art and academics, didn't happen in both the North and the South, but you can generally characterize the Southern Renaissance as artistic and the Northern Renaissance as academic. Da Vinci, for example, in the South, had some important scientific contributions, especially to the science of anatomy. And on the other hand, there were some great artists in the North as well. But the real changes in the North were academic and scientific changes. One of the first and most influential scholars was an Englishman named John Wycliffe. Wycliffe was an instructor at Oxford back in the 1300s, which I admit is sort of going back into time again here, but his example and ideas were important as the Renaissance moved into Europe, so we need to talk a little bit about him right here. Wycliffe was a scholar of the Bible, and he could read Hebrew and Greek, which was pretty rare at the time. Wycliffe began to translate the Bible into English, which infuriated the church authorities. He also preached from time to time, even though he was a professor, and he spoke out openly against the corruption that he saw in the church. One of Wycliffe's main contentions with the church was about how the people were saved. Now, the church at the time maintained that the only way for people to be saved, the only path to salvation, was to go through the church by staying a faithful churchgoer and by continuing to take the church's sacraments. That meant being married in the church, obeying the church's rules, getting baptized in the church, and continuing to take the Lord's Supper in the church. It meant remaining part of the church community. Wycliffe, though, began to teach that the only way to salvation, the only way for a person to be saved, was for each person to individually receive God's grace for themselves and for each person to follow the Bible themselves. Now, the difference here is important. On the one hand, you have the, the church teaching that the church alone was responsible for salvation, and that salvation is a corporate thing, that everybody who's participating in the church is participating in salvation. Salvation in their mind was something that affected the whole of society, and everyone participated in corporately through the church. But on the other hand, you have Wycliffe saying that it's individual, that each person alone is responsible themselves, and that each person was responsible for their own salvation rather than the church being responsible for it. Hidden in what Wycliffe is saying is the idea that a person could be saved outside of the church, that it could just be one person alone with their God, and that that person's salvation was equally valid. This is a kind of 
revolutionary idea for the time. Who is responsible for someone being saved? Well, let's come back to that question and run down a quick rabbit hole and ask the question, what does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? Wycliffe and the church basically have the same answer to that question, but later reformers are going to come back to the question themselves, and they're going to look even more closely at this, and they're going to begin to change the answer. At the, at the time of Wycliffe, the idea of salvation included both the concept of being saved from an eternity in hell, but it also included the idea of being saved from the degradations and sinful stain of the current world. To be saved meant that you were in the process of being freed from the sin and destruction of the world that you lived in, and that when you died, you would not spend eternity in hell. We'll come back to hell in a couple of episodes. I really do want to do a whole episode on that. But I want to highlight here that this salvation from both hell and the current world was not seen as a one-and-done thing. It wasn't guaranteed. It was widely accepted at the time that a person could lose their salvation, and you could go back to being both condemned to eternal hell and also being lost in the current world. You were either on God's side and being redeemed from the world and then eventually going to heaven, or if you lost your salvation, you were condemned to both eternal hell and to being against God for all the rest of your life. It's not a pretty picture. And the church maintained that only the church, its leaders, its hierarchy, the institution of the church, could grant or remove someone's salvation. In other words, if you wanted to be saved, you had to do it through the church. You had to do what the church said. You had to stay on the church's good side. The church maintained that it could at any time simply remove someone's salvation. This was called excommunication. And it meant that you were no longer allowed in a church, nor could you participate in any church functions like marriages, baptisms, or the Lord's Supper. It also meant, at least in the church's eyes, that you had lost your salvation forever. You were now condemned to an eternity in hell. It's a heck of a punishment and a heck of a big hammer to wield over your population, at least theoretically. So back to Wycliffe. Part of what Wycliffe was saying was that this eternal salvation, or condemnation, was not in the hands of the church, but in the hands of each person before their God. Each person, according to Wycliffe, was responsible before God themselves, just themselves, and that salvation came not because of continued obedience to the church, but salvation came based on God's grace and God's gift to that person alone. Now, Martin Luther is going to make a big deal of this as well. Of course, the church did not at all like Wycliffe's ideas. The church hated these ideas for a couple of reasons. First, the church wanted to preserve its position of importance and control. And second, the church had years of tradition to uphold. Part of what was going on with Wycliffe's teaching was the insidious idea, it was insidious to the church anyway, the insidious idea that individuals could read the Bible themselves and draw their own conclusions. That's what Wycliffe did rather than being obedient to the church's official teachings. And Wycliffe, translating the Bible into English, only further encouraged this idea. And of course, this was a threat to the church. Wycliffe was brought before church councils, and he was excommunicated by the Pope, but he continued to teach and preach in England. While he was performing Mass, this is a Catholic service, right? He's been excommunicated, but he's performing Mass— while he's performing Mass on December 28th of 1384, he suffered a stroke in, in the service. And then a few days later, he died at the age of 56. But his followers persisted in spreading his ideas, even though those ideas were banned by church leaders. 
One of the places that Wycliffe's teachings spread was to Bohemia, which is now known as the Czech Republic. It's in Central Europe, sort of sandwiched between Germany, Austria, Poland, and Slovakia. It's very much the center of Central Europe. In the early part of the 1400s, a Czech scholar and preacher whose name was John Huss got hold of some of John Wycliffe's teachings, and he began to preach about them in Prague. Huss, like Wycliffe, opposed the church's practice of selling indulgences. Now, indulgences were basically a piece of paper that you could buy from the church and that said that a person had been guaranteed that they would be released from purgatory and go on to heaven. You could buy indulgences for yourself or for loved ones, even if those people were deceased. It was actually a major source of church revenue. In fact, I'm thinking about selling them myself on my website. For only $100, I will personally guarantee that you won't go to purgatory. You can sign up on the website, and I'll send you a little piece of paper that you can carry around with you if you need. Huss openly preached against the corruption of the church and against indulgences, and he built up a lot of supporters in Prague and the Czech area, but he also built up a lot of enemies in the church in Rome. He was, like Wycliffe, summoned before several church councils, but in Huss's case, they condemned him to death. In July of 1415, he was executed by being burned at the stake. He refused to the very end to recant his views. He apparently was quoting the Psalms out loud as he burned. His death infuriated many of his followers, and it led to a four-year war between his supporters and Rome, but it also led to the very first independent church congregations in over a thousand years. Some local congregations separated themselves from the church and said we're no longer under the authority of the church. They thought the church was corrupt. They became independent churches. These independent churches were known as Moravians or sometimes Hussites, and they were the first independent branch of the church. Nowadays, okay, that's not a big deal because there's so many denominations and they're all independent from each other. But in 1415, it was huge. It's a big, big step, both religiously and politically. It's like Scotland declaring itself independent from Great Britain. It's like Texas declaring itself independent from the United States. It's like Kanye West declaring himself independent from reality. It was a big deal. Never before had churches said, we're not part of the bigger church. Going back to what I said about Wycliffe, it was a step towards individualism, away from corporatism and institutionalism. And in a way, it was an important step towards individuals and small groups of people choosing independence from their existing government. It was a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach. It was the people banding together and saying, hey, together, we're going to choose our destiny. We're going to make our own rules rather than letting the entrenched power structures above us that are far away make those choices for us. It's kind of hard to imagine the Reformation or Enlightenment happening without these kinds of first steps. Independent groups of people coming together and saying, hey, we're responsible for our lives and destiny, not this government far away in Rome or wherever. There had been some examples of this in the ancient world, like the Athenians and the Roman Republic, but it had really been quite a while since this had happened, and it set off a cascade of other dominoes, which will eventually lead us to the American Revolution. But we're not there yet. There's some other things to talk about regarding the Northern Renaissance before we get to Luther and the Reformation, etc. In Northern Europe, scholars also began to question some things about the medieval worldview. For example, the assumption that the earth was flat. 
or the assumption that the sun and the planets revolved around the earth rather than the other way around. Now, this is a big deal. The telescope was invented in about 1600, and it allowed astronomers to look much more closely at celestial bodies, like the moon and some of the planets. And it was pretty obvious through a telescope that the moon was itself a sphere, not a flat disk, and that gave credence to the idea that the earth might also be a sphere. Now, there were some Greek mathematicians and astronomers back in the day who had claimed the same thing. They claimed that it was a sphere, but that had been lost over the years. There was a Greek guy named Eratosthenes who lived in the 200s BC, and he claimed that the Earth was a sphere, and he calculated its circumference. And he was only about 5% off the actual circumference of the Earth. But this idea of a spherical Earth and its circumference had been lost, and the prevailing medieval worldview was that the Earth was a flat disk, and the sun, moon, and planets all revolved around the Earth. Now, in 1543, this is before the invention of the telescope, right? a Polish Catholic mathematician published a book called De Revolutionibus Orbium Coelestium, which means On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres, that proved through observation and calculations that the Earth and the planets all revolved around the Sun. This book was written by Nicholas Copernicus, who was a fairly devoted Catholic, but he was also a brilliant mathematician, astrologer, and scholar. He published his book just before his death in 1543, but before that, he had written a summary of his ideas, which he had given to a few friends, and that summary, in our current lingo, went viral. People all over Europe hearing about it, getting copies, and making new copies. So Copernicus's ideas were out there even before his book was published. Copernicus's observations, which he meticulously recorded over many years, showed him that the Earth spun on its axis and that the Earth and the planets all orbited around the Sun. Copernicus's system was the first one that really accurately depicted, mathematically and theoretically, depicted the motion of all the heavenly bodies that humans had been observing for thousands of years. When his full book, De Revolutionibus Orbium Coelestium, was finally published, it was quickly disseminated all over Europe, at least in scholarly circles. It's an important early example of the scientific method, and it benefited also from the invention of the printing press by Gutenberg. So these things were copied and printed. Copernicus supported his ideas with detailed observational data and with very detailed mathematical calculations. It was a kind of early example of, hey, this is how you do science even though Copernicus didn't really talk about his methods, he just showed what he had done. Copernicus died just after the book was published, but the idea was planted in the minds of many scholars all over Europe. One of the subsequent scholars who was influenced by Copernicus was an Italian who might be in the running for one of the smartest, most important scientists of all time. This is Galileo. There are some people who consider Galileo the father of modern science, but hey, let's give some credit to Copernicus and the ancient Greeks too. But Galileo made a huge impact on how people understood the world and the universe and how they did science. Galileo Galilei was born in Pisa, Italy in February of 1564. By that point, the bell tower that had been built in Pisa was already leaning, so Galileo must have known about the leaning tower of Pisa. It was probably pretty obvious. Galileo himself had some serious firsts. He may have invented both the thermometer and the telescope, although other people were kind of working on those things at the same time. 
but especially with the telescope, Galileo really perfected it and did some things that no one had ever done before. Now think about this just a bit. Before the telescope, people had only been able to look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, and other distant objects with the naked eye. Galileo built his own telescopes, and he spent hours and hours and more hours looking up at the night sky. He looked at the moon and a lot of the known planets. Galileo may have been the first person to clearly see the craters of the moon. Some of his sketches show that the moon had craters, and no one else seems to have recorded that before him. Also, Galileo was able to confirm that the moon was a sphere, not a flat disk, as some said. Since the moon was a sphere, it gave, again, more credence to the idea that the Earth was also a sphere. Galileo turned his telescope on Mars and was the first to see that Mars had its own moons. He was the first to see the moons of Jupiter, and he saw that there were several of them. He was the first person to see the rings of Saturn, although he didn't know at the time they were rings. It was a few generations later that telescopes were actually powerful enough to be able to see, hey, those are rings, not just moons. Galileo also documented the phases of Venus, meaning that he saw that it had phases like the moon. That is, it went from you know full moon or full Venus to mostly hidden, just like the moon does. He even managed to see and document sunspots. He was also the first to claim that the Milky Way is made up of individual stars, not just a big cloud. It's amazing to think that no one had really seen any of this stuff before. On top of his firsts in observation, he also used some detailed calculations based on Copernicus to show that the planets, including the Earth, orbited the Sun. He first published some of his observations starting in about 1609, and he was very quickly in trouble with the church. In 1615, his name and some of his writings were submitted to the Inquisition. I should totally have a separate podcast on the Inquisition, and now that I'm writing this, I think I will add it. So we're going to talk about the Inquisition in the next episode. So Galileo was dragged before the Inquisition, even though no one expected it. In 1619, in response to a Jesuit priest who was commenting about a recent comet, Galileo published a small book called The Assayer. In it, Galileo stated that explanations of the earth and the skies needed to be backed up with observations, data, and mathematics. It's one of the earliest examples of someone calling for something like the scientific method, which I also need to have a separate episode about, I suppose. Anyway, Galileo's book, The Assayer, was a kind of call to arms for science. He was basically saying that good science wasn't just about coming up with ideas and explaining them through logic. Good science was proving those ideas with observation, data, and math. Then later in 1632, Galileo published a book called Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, which compared the old-school Earth-centered ideas of Ptolemy with the Sun-centered views of Copernicus. In it, Galileo used observations to support the idea that the Earth moved around the Sun. Now, the church was even more bothered by this, even though Galileo claimed that he himself did not support the Copernican system and that his book was just a dialogue between the two systems. Now, honestly, I don't think anyone believed that he was not a supporter of the Copernican system, but that's what he held to, at least in front of the Inquisition. It didn't help his cause, though, that the guy in the book who supported the Ptolemaic Earth-centered system, the old system, was named Simplicio, which in Italian means simpleton. And in the book, that guy comes off as a bit of a simpleton, too. In 1633, 
Galileo is brought before the Inquisition, and despite his arguments that he himself didn't actually hold that the earth moved around the sun, he was forced, under threat of torture, to recant. Apparently, though, he famously mumbled after his recantation, E pur se muove, which means, in Italian, and yet it moves. In 1638, he published yet another important book of early science called Two New Sciences, which basically established the earliest physics of bodies in motion, which if you ever studied high school physics, that's what high school physics is all about. So thank you, Galileo. But he also talked about the physics of stress on different materials. That's college physics. So in addition to being the first guy to look at the moon and the planets with the telescope, he was one of the first to publish a book about actual physics supported by math. It's fair, I think, that he's often called the father of modern science. He really did some pioneering work on it, and his work was referenced by all the following subsequent scientists. So this kind of sets the stage for two important tensions that we're going to see over the next 200 years. The first is the tension between the medieval church's view of the world and the rapidly expanding scientific view of the world. This is a key piece of the Northern Renaissance. There were a lot of things at odds in these two views, so there was bound to be tension. The second tension was the conflict between the Catholic Church and those who questioned its positions and authority, again a key piece of the Northern Renaissance. Over the next couple of podcast episodes, we'll look more closely at both of these tensions and the people involved in them. In the episode after next, we'll look at Martin Luther and the beginning of the Reformation. But before that, the episode that nobody expects. (laughs) 